Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello. Uh, welcome back from your weekends. And we... <laughs> We'll just shower you with some bad news. No, we're really not going to do that. We are going to talk about the variants, uh, the mutations in SARS-CoV-2 and what they mean and what you need to know about them and how worried you need to be. We're also going to talk about, for the second time, we're going to talk about Joe Biden's Catholicism. Well, particularly about sort of the way in which that infused his inauguration, the response from some of the U.S. bishops uh, it's not an entirely friendly response. That's why I'm talking in that tone of voice. But also the way in which some of what Biden brings to the table in terms of religious background marries up to a social gospel you might be seeing expressed by some of the new members of Congress. All right. And then at the end, I'm going to talk about my friend John McDonough. Uh, he was a tremendous performer. He did everything from reincarnate Captain Kangaroo in a short-lived revival of that series to, I don't know, sing on Prairie Home Companion. And and he lived right down the street from you, and you didn't even know he was there. Anyway, he has, he's left us, but um, I hope we can have kind of a joyous reminiscence of, of him. We're going to begin, though, with Paul Turner. I heard him on uh, In the Bubble, uh, one of the many COVID podcasts I listened to. Uh, and he's an evolution, and he was great. And I thought, I, I want him on my show. He's an evolutionary biologist and virologist. Uh, he's the Rachel Carson Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University and microbiology faculty member at Yale School of Medicine. Paul Turner, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me, Colin. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. So uh, before we get to some of the latest news, I mean, this is something that way back in January or February, you could have you could have and perhaps did tell us, look, this thing, you know, viruses, they change, they mutate. Get ready for this not to always be quite the same quasi animal that it is now. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Sure, I can speak to that a bit. Uh, I agree. This is not surprising. So I study virus evolution and any population of biological critters, and viruses are an example, uh, if they are in a new environment, and in this case, they're in humans, if they can improve through evolution to be better at using their environment, you will observe it. So this is what we are seeing, is that independently in lots of different countries, these variants are popping up that are um, better in some way, and the better is more transmissible. Right. Better, better from their point of view. Yes, exactly. Uh, better from their point of view. That is very true. And, and does that explain why it seems as though they very quickly begin to crowd out, you know, what we might refer to in the language of Coca-Cola as classic COVID? Uh, I mean, it seems as though these variants, as they come in, they might start at one or two percent and, you know, they go, it goes up pretty quickly. Yes, it goes up very quickly because of the way that viruses replicate or, you know, make copies within cells. And that is any little bit of an edge. Uh, If any more production in the cell is happening, if more viruses are reaching more humans, then that's another way to increase the overall numbers of infections. So anything that drives that, you're going to see uh, 
the, the response would be the number of cases that you see uh, in the hospital. Unfortunately, maybe the number of deaths that you see is something that can increase. So wh- what do we know about the advantage? And we'll talk about the British one, uh, which is, I think, probably the one that is going to come to dominate in the United States. Um, or maybe you don't think that, in which case, quickly overrule me. But let's talk about the British one, B117, I think is what it's called. But what is its advantage? What makes it a, a better critter than the critter we got used to? Yeah, so it has uh, some mutations, actually very many of them, that distinguish it from what you call the classic COVID. And uh, this, the question is, you know, what does some of those mutations mean? Organisms mutate, and sometimes these are what are called neutral mutations, and they really don't affect traits at all. But what you're seeing with this UK variant is that there are mutations that are happening in the real action site that we worry about. That's the spike protein. This is the protein that allows the virus to recognize a receptor on human cells and to get in. So clearly something is going on there that what you'd call selection is kicking in and evolution is proceeding so that those mutations, what is likely occurring is that that spike protein has a greater affinity. It has a better ability to be uh, a lock and key mechanism. It is the better key that interacts with the lock on our human cells and opens up that door for the virus to get in. Do you think, I mean, obviously these are hard questions to answer dispositively because this is such a moving target and we're in the middle of something as opposed to anywhere near the end of it. But does it strike you that one of these variants, possibly B117, is going to kind of overwhelm uh, the existing virus here and become the dominant version of this uh, of this virus in the U.S.? That's plausible. That could happen. And it is very much a numbers game. If you have a lot of people getting infected, which is unfortunately what we are experiencing here in the USA, any variant that comes in that has an advantage in reaching more people, if it is more transmissible, then if all else were the same, I would expect that that variant would increase and it would be eventually the more problematic one. Fortunately, what's happening is that I believe not everything is going to be the same. We're able to push back uh, more effectively with vaccines. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, I mean, what you said is true. If it's just a numbers game and it's just straight up which variant is better capable of reaching new hosts, then I would expect the UK variant is going to be the more problematic one here eventually, if that plays out. Now, so far, based on my understanding anyway, and we'll get to the South African one in a second where it is kind of different, but based on what we're hearing so far, transmissibility, yes, higher rate. In terms of actual, well, first of all, in terms of its response to the vaccines that we have, the the mRNA vaccines that we have, it, it seems as though the UK one is not going to be a special problem there anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be kind of good news, bad news. So in the sense of do we have vaccine ability to recognize this variant and other variants and act effectively, so far the data look good. For that. Uh, the bad news might be just over the weekend, I think it was, mm-hmm. a couple of reports came out for which uh, we don't know, we don't have enough data to make claims, I believe, in the UK. They are mm-hmm. seeing perhaps a bit more mortality associated, unfortunately, with this new variant. But I think a lot of people are acknowledging that more data are needed, that the data seem to be showing that, but it's hard to draw a firm conclusion because it's an early result. 
but certainly as your listeners might imagine, there is just a ton of time and energy and effort happening in laboratories around the world because you can study these kinds of mutations by putting them in to the classic COVID and seeing the outcome. So there's a lot of intense investigation going on now to find out, at least to be understand what, you know, is driving the transmissibility just from the biology. And as we get more numbers from places like the UK that are very effective at testing when somebody is sick, which variant do they have, the data will emerge or not to show that this is a more problematic variant in terms of mortality. Right. So I think that um, the Boris Johnson may have even used the uh, phrase more deadly, but we really don't know that, as you say. And conditions on the ground, I would imagine, would affect uh, case fatality rates. I mean, if you have an NHS that's increasingly overwhelmed because there's more and more cases coming in because this thing's more transmissible, uh, you you may not be able to treat all these patients as effectively as you did, you know, maybe a few months ago or certainly in the summer. So, I mean, yeah. fatalities could go up without the disease itself being the reason. Yes, that was very well stated. Uh, you clearly are listening to lots of COVID podcasts <laughs> because that's very true, Colin. It's hard to kind of uh, separate what is happening with this new variant and causing high mortality from the so-called, you know, ecology that it is sitting in and in UK, where if they have stressed health systems anyway, then unfortunately you're going to get mortality her, uh, occurring just because the health system is stressed out. And you know, of course, that's why we are fearful of the variant being important here in the USA, because we are showing uh, the stress on our current health systems. But you summarized it perfectly is that it seems like the data could be showing this, but it's hard to separate out this confounding effect of it occurring in a system that is so stressed for its health system. So um, before we move on, one other question that I had, and this also might be a question without a contemporary answer, is so we know, at least from the initial, initial reports, it doesn't seem like the UK variant is going to uh, escape, as they say, from uh, from the immunizing effects uh, of the vaccines that we have. Would it be intuitive or would it make sense to say that that might also be the case for naturally acquired immunities? In other words, if you've had COVID-19, it's conferred a certain level of immunity on you, but you had classic COVID-19. Um, what is known about how immune you might be I mean, we don't even really know how immune you might be to classic COVID based right. on natural yeah, yeah, acquisition. This is very true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are the kind of results that are coming in literally day by day because people are looking at this very closely. If you can get these antibodies or plasma from individuals who had experienced the uh, classic virus and then you expose this new variant, what you want to do are what are neutralization assays. They have specific names to see how effective are those antibodies against this relative that is now separated from the classic one by many mutations. And so far, the data look good that you do get this neutralization, um, but that may be uh, less neutralizing or less effective. So all those results, all those data count because they're going to allow us to have the best understanding of when somebody is naturally seeing and recovering from the classic version of this virus, what happens when they see this different variant? Are they going to be at all affected? Are they going to be somewhat affected? And uh, it's hard to know that without true studies on individual cases, but we're trying our best in laboratories around the world to test that out 
And I, I think literally within, uh, I would imagine, a week or so, you know, a lot of those results are going to keep pouring in and we'll get a better understanding of this. So um, the, the other thing, we should talk a little bit about the South African variant. I guess my first question to you about that is, I mean, there's some travel bans coming in and stuff like that. Right. Would, would it be your guess that this thing is here already and, and, and will propagate anyway, no matter what anybody does? Or Oh, yes. Is, yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the reminder is countries differ in the degree of testing that is happening for infected patients. And it happens to be in the UK, there's a lot of testing happening efficiently. And that means they could pick up on a variant coming through like this and increasing. But I, I've never heard definitively or seen any data that confirmed that it actually evolved there. It mm -hmm. could have come in from elsewhere. So this does remind us that travel bans, they prevent variants from moving around the world because you stop the infected people from moving around, especially those who may be asymptomatic. So that's, you know, not wonderful news for your listeners to hear is if you're going to have travel bans that we're going to be enacting or going back to, um, to fight this problem. But yeah, that's what I would expect that we would do as a kind of a defense mechanism to prevent it from spreading while we get the results, get the data that convince us is this, very problematic? Is it somewhat problematic? Or what happens next? So well, last question about all this, uh, and then we'll pivot a little bit more strongly towards vaccines. Do we need more genomic surveillance of this kind of stuff? In other words, it feels like we're reacting to things as opposed to getting ahead of things. It's like, you know, I think with the British one, they found it in late November, but then they realized it had been around since, you know, mid-September or something, you know, they backtracked, yes. you know. So is there a way through genomics, genomic surveillance that we could see this coming a little faster? Yes, and uh, certainly here in the USA, we have the infrastructure, you know, we have the capability and the equipment to be doing this kind of genomic surveillance. But it takes a lot of people um, in geographic regions across the USA putting equal effort in. And it's been very spotty to date. So there are some places where this kind of surveillance is happening and other places where it's completely absent. So it's hard to know uh, across our vast geography of the USA, where are these variants increasing that are different than the original one? And the only way to get at that is to do more genomic surveillance. So you're correct. We've been very reactive. We need to be more proactive. Arguably, you know, we could have been doing this quite some time ago and doing more of the genomic surveillance and making sure that it is happening in as many of the geographies that make up the USA and also around the world. But, you know, this does cost money. It's not free. So yes. fortunately, genetics and genomics is cheaper than it mm. was 10 and certainly more than 20 years ago. But uh, I mean, you know, it's but it still takes time, effort, and people trained properly to obtain the data and interpret it. So I don't want to trivialize it, but it is the thing that would give us the most information for this kind of a problem. How much is the virus evolving? And is the variation leading to the increased spread of some variants compared to others? Right. 
I ordered an Illumina sequencing machine from Amazon for my home use, but uh, I don't recommend that most people do that. So um, some of the news that we've gotten uh, over the last, say, 48 hours includes Moderna saying that uh, they think they're going to be fine against the British variant with the South African variant. Uh, variant. It's, they're saying that the the immunity response is a six-fold reduction from what they're used to, but they also feel that's still sufficient unto the day. Uh, if, uh, you know, that, that that would be enough to produce, uh, our, the requisite amount of, of resistant antibodies and all that stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, my, my thoughts are, this is indeed good news coming from the vaccine manufacturers. And, uh, we do want to hear from them that if their formulations are going to be able to work at all against these variants, you know, I would expect that what you're what you're doing with the vaccine and also through human immunity is you're, you're targeting a lot of this pathogen to detect it, find it, and you know, go out and neutralize it if it's in your body. And, you know, the, the virus, the variants would have to radically, radically change to completely escape that. And I'm not saying that's impossible, but fortunately, coronaviruses, they can evolve. They don't evolve as quickly, as far as we know, compared to other scourges of humanity like influenza. So I, I think we, with these more rapid platforms, especially mRNA platforms, to churn out vaccines, that if we did have to change up the formulation and create something new, we're more nimble in our ability to do it with this new technology. So I, I think it's good news so far that we're seeing that the vaccines should be capable of working either entirely well or pretty well against these new variants. And if that fails utterly, we're not going to be defenseless in terms of vaccine production because of the new platforms. They're better capable and more efficient at dealing with this kind of a problem. Well, Moderna is already making a booster, right? A booster that they, yes. they're not sure that they're going to need. I mean, one of the things that's sort of weird about all this, particularly the last month or so of the vaccine rollout, you know, those of us who just like took science classes in school, there were right answers, there were wrong answers, you know, I mean, there's yeah. settled wisdom about a lot of things. But now it's kind of like, yeah, we're making a booster because I don't we're not even sure you're going to need it. But you know, in a year, we might be giving you a booster. Uh, it's like stuff like that. I, you know, maybe we could use half as many micrograms of this vaccine. I, I agree. It's, it's an interesting when you read these stories. Um, so I, I want the listeners to understand, of course, science is all about exploration. And we are hypothesis testing even at the level of these companies when they are trying their best. And some of this is judgment calls, but that's just the way science works. So the, the nice thing about science is, is, is it has a built-in approach, is that if you get the data confirming that you're right and you move ahead, well, if you get the data saying that, wait, I need to be more worried about this, then you, you flip the script and you try to tackle the problem in a different way. So I think what you're hearing from Moderna and these other vaccine manufacturers is that they are trying to be, again, now proactive. That if we, as we learn more and more literally every day about this pandemic, it also necessarily means that we are grappling with and concerned about if we can't tackle the problem the way that we think we can, we better get creative very quickly. And some of that creativity can happen now. You don't have to wait for that problem to emerge. We do know enough about the rules of this system, even as we learn some more rules that describe it. But we, we have so much more knowledge now than we did you know, 10 or 11 months ago. 
So I think that we have to have some confidence moving forward that that is going to help us. Right. And and the word lucky doesn't really fit the situation of a terrible uh, and very deadly pandemic. But it is kind of true that this technology, this mRNA technology seems to have come on board right when it was needed. Moderna, I think, you know, a week or two after sequencing in March, Moderna had something up on the drawing boards that kind of looks like the vaccine we've got now. And as you're suggesting, it's infinitely well, not infinitely, but it's, it's readily tweakable to uh, address new things that come up. It's, it's going to be a, a more kind of elastic thing to adapt and change to. I mean, you know, if the mRNA stuff, had, I mean, Merck just dropped its vaccine program today. If, if, if Moderna and Pfizer hadn't had such incredible success with what's a fairly new technology, you know, we really yes. would be having a different kind of conversation right now, Paul. I, I agree. That's a very good comment. And Maybe the lesson learned here is that in biotechnology, it does require creativity. I mean, whether you're producing a vaccine or whatever you're doing. So at a company, you might hold on to some approaches, keep them churning through R&D a little bit by putting money, time and effort into it because you don't quite know what the challenges of the future will be, even if there are subtleties on what you're already chasing. So the better equipped you are, at a particular company because you happen to be exploring the right thing, yes, you can capitalize on that. And other companies just didn't have that in the pipeline. So I completely get it. Uh, it sounds like you know, a lot of luck, but I think it's kind of built in to when you're trying to chase new therapies and new biotechnology anyway, you have to be creative. And I guess my point is people don't just completely discard ideas as they move forward. Some of that stuff is uh, in the minds of the employees, or at least in the records of the company, and they can turn back to something as hopefully a new approach when uh, you know, the current approach is not working so well. Last uh, question for you, or last question area for you. I, th I think there is a tendency, and it's a tendency that I've had expressed to me in emails over the last 24 48 hours based on a, a column of mine that ran that people were objecting to. And one guy said, well, you know, it's all vaccines anyway. I mean, masks and all that doesn't do anything. Uh, <laughs> I'm no, 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 so, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So we, we better say that right now. First of all, with these new variants, you know, yeah. you don't want to get one of them in your nose because it's going to do the lock and key thing a lot better than the old one. And in terms of the vaccines, you haven't had the vaccines yet. We don't know exactly how the immunity is conferred. I mean, 2021 is the year of the mask right? That's right. I agree with that. Um, I guess I've, on, I've gone on record that uh, I, I just believe people just, they have to be patient. They have to keep doing the, the obviously good stuff that unfortunately not everybody has bought into. Wear your masks, socially distance, don't uh, interact in large crowds. All of that works in our favor as you roll out vaccines and more people are vaccinated the pandemic will end earlier if we change our behaviors temporarily to do this. I mean, it is not, you know, I've said it to many people, it's not rocket science. It is doubling down on what we've already done. And I, I get it. Some people believe it's not palatable. They don't want to do it, but it just, the data are there. I mean, it would help us get through this faster if people change their behavior and it's temporary. So, um, all everyone can help in this effort and this would be the way that it would be leading to everybody helping right i mean this is not an entirely serious statement i'm making but you know from a certain point of view 
Like the people who should be put in the front of the vaccination lines are the people who get really mad if they can't get a table for 10 at a restaurant and they throw a fit about it or they refuse to wear a mask. It's like, oh, no, we're going to vaccinate you right now. All right. There's no point in vaccinating the people who are exercising common sense. Uh, People with no common sense, they get vaccines before everybody else. Uh, But Uh, unless you think of that as rewarding bad behavior. But I know what you're you're saying there. They'd say no anyway, uh, because they have no common sense. All right. Well, Paul Turner is an evolutionary biologist biologist uh, and virologist. He's the Rachel Carson Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at uh, Yale University. This is a long title. And Microbiology faculty member at Yale School of Medicine. It took two breaths to do that, Paul Turner, but you were well worth it. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Colin. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure being here. Thanks. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with uh, a guy you've heard on our show many times, Michael Sean Winters, who's going to join us and talk about um, the latest iteration of Joe Biden's Catholic beliefs. But to understand that it's a no reality. All right. So uh, we've talked about this before, but it, it was very interesting to see uh, the Catholicism, uh, the Catholic faith uh, of Joe Biden on display, infusing uh, the texture of his inauguration. Uh, and uh, there's some interesting responses to all that, too. So here to join us, as he has many times before, Michael Sean Winters uh, writes the Distinctly Catholic blog for the National Catholic Reporter and is the author of two books, including Left at the Altar, How Democrats Lost the Catholics and How Catholics Can Save the Democrats. Uh, so. Uh, Michael Sean Winters, welcome back to our airwaves. Good to be with you, Colin. So before we get you talking, let's hear a, a little bit of President Joe Biden speaking on Inauguration Day, January 20th. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, and if We're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes. Because here's the thing about life. There's no accounting for what fate will deal you. Some days when you need a hand, there are other days when we're called to lend a hand. That's how it has to be. That's what we do for one another. So um, he quoted St. Augustine. Um, he did a lot of stuff. What, what did you hear uh, in that speech? I think not just in the speech, but, you know, he began the day going to Mass at, at my old parish, St. Matthew's Cathedral, invited the leaders of Congress to join him, which they did. Uh, had uh, two Catholic singers, J-Lo and Lady Gaga. Uh, that, that wonderful young poet, uh, Ms. Gorman, is a Catholic who, who finished the ceremony. Had Father Jesuit, the Jesuit uh, priest Leo Donovan give the, uh, the opening prayer at the inauguration. It was a Catholic day all around. What, what, what Joe Biden represents is an a, a identifiable type, recognizable type of Catholic who goes to Mass religiously, no pun intended, but, you know, he goes every Sunday. We have not had a, a church-going president this regularly since since Jimmy Carter. 
Um, and and there was actually, if you're on the, um, it was funny if you if you get the pool reports um, from the White House on Sunday morning, they said, you know, we we've been told to be ready to go in 20 minutes. We think we're not going to a certain golf course in Virginia this this Sunday. Um, so, but but he is on. Um, you know, deeply grounded in, in what we call the social doctrine of the church, which, um, you know, deals with issues of social justice and, 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 and income inequality and, and issues of, of uh, union membership. And, and that really got its start in 1891 with, uh, with a, uh, a, an encyclical by Pope Leo XIII, but was taken up by the Bishops' Conference when it was first formed in 1917, uh, was influential on FDR, and has really been you know, kind of the, the, the lodestar of Catholic social, te- you know, core teachings that, that we grow up with as Catholics. In the political realm, on Biden's watch, all of that got overtaken by abortion mm-hmm. and related pelvic theology issues. And that's where the tension with the bishops comes in. But I, what I heard in Joe's speech was a, a man who recognized the country had been brought to the abyss by his predecessor the place from which he was speaking and where the guests were sitting was a crime scene two weeks earlier. And he was using the rituals of democracy and the symbols of democracy uh, to redeem that space uh, from, from those horrible people who had invaded it two weeks earlier. And in that regard, it was really the most moving, uh, I don't know if I want to say, the, the 2009 inauguration of our first black president was entirely moving also for a different set of reasons but it, it was up there as as a really moving civic experience and and in a way the the way that biden is is conveying all of this it kind of lines up interestingly with pope francis right i mean uh there's a way in which some of the same notes that pope francis has tried to sound about the larger mission uh the larger scope uh, uh of the church uh you kind of see a little bit of that in what you were just describing oh absolutely now there's limits to the comparison obviously yes. you know although pope francis has said look we can't be just about abortion and contraception he he is opposed to abortion uh, uh legalized abortion and, and joe biden is not Obviously, uh, although both have a very um, are, are aware that the rise of China is a very significant event for both the Roman Catholic Church and for the United States of America, it represents very different challenges. And and the ways that the two organizations respond will be vastly different. Um, and I think, you know, it goes with it being a president of the United States that you are on a kind of east-west access where I think Pope Francis has made clear since, you know, day one, he's on more of a north-south uh, access. That said, I think they both have an understanding of Catholicism in the public square, that it needs to be less judgmental, that it has to be more dialogical. Um, it, it, it can't get all in a tizzy about religious liberty. That, that, that the issue that the issues raised by religious liberty are not just, oh, what am I free to do? But um, what do I owe people in a society with whom I disagree? Um, it's it, And I, I don't think uh, Francis or or Biden are terrified the way some Catholics are of, of a pluralistic society, and uh, and it's not just Catholics. I mean, obviously, uh, white evangelicals and and other parts of the religious spectrum are are you know have this hectoring for for a, a 1950s of their imagination. It's it's also a 1950s that never existed, but um, 
but that they, they, they are driven by a nostalgia. And, and, you know, one of the most refreshing things about Biden in part because of his age, as with the Holy father is these men are very free. They're just as individuals, you look at them, you spend time around you, you, these are people with, with great interior freedom and, and, um, coming off what this country's just come, come off of with this, you know, man whose mind was kind of reptilian and reduced everything to food or, or threat. Um, it was just so refreshing to, to hear, uh, President Biden speak and, and the way he reached out to people, the fact that he acknowledged uh, Vice President Pence in his address, um, all of it. I just think it's, an, it's a new and much more humane day. And yes, Pope Francis clearly would, is approving that. Right. So, uh, uh, but not so approving that is the U.S. Conference of Bishops. Um, and in fact, uh, led by uh, Archbishop Jose Gomez, uh, they were, you, you might think it'd be kind of a great day all around, Catholic president, uh, very Catholic president, <laughs> church going Catholic president, but they didn't necessarily see it that way. No, they issued this very churlish statement um it was very unfortunate. I mean, it said, oh, well, we want to work, look forward to working with him on this and that. But on the other hand, there's no on the other hand on, on Inauguration Day. It's it's like you don't do that on a, on a person's wedding day. You don't say, you know, on the other hand, she could have married Bob rather than Joe. I mean, you just it was inappropriate. <laughs> um, it was very interesting that that uh, several other bishops, including, you know, the, the one cardinal here in New England, Cardinal O'Malley, issued his own statement mm. uh, rather than just you know, uh, republishing the, the statement from Archbishop Gomez. Um, Cardinal uh, Supich in Chicago actually issued a statement that referred to Gomez's statement as ill-considered. You know, this is, I can't even tell you what a breach of, of standard operating procedure that is. They they always like to per, uh, present a united front, um, but, but this was only given to the bishops as a whole the night before, there was not the kind of wide consultation you would normally have. Um, it was very much indirectly also uh, a pushback against Pope Francis, who who has made it clear he wants to have a good working relationship with this new administration and wants to work on climate change and and migration issues and a host of issues. And and they were trying to and and the, the statement that the bit that Gomez issued really was trying to sabotage the hope of any relationship. That's that's that was not somebody who was doing you know, trying to be balanced. That was someone who was trying to ruin the relationship. Uh, and and unfortunately, I, I think a majority of the bishops in this country are with Gomez and, and they really can't wrap their head around having a, a, a pro-choice Catholic. Bad enough to have a pro-choice Baptist, but to have a pro-choice Catholic really drives them nuts. Right. We should say that, first of all, the way that Biden usually expresses it is that he he actually holds the belief uh, beliefs of the church, but he doesn't feel he, he can impose them. Uh, that, but of course, that's very confused, right? Yes. Because he then says, you know, but I'm informed by the Catholic social teaching, which says uh, you have to have a living wage. Well, is he going to say, but of course, I'm not going to impose that. I mean, this, that's where his position on, on abortion, I think, you know, fails pretty badly. But but you engage him on it and you talk and you try to, you know, this is the, the bishops for 40 years have done a really bad job trying to persuade people. And we're, you know, we just had the anniversary of Roe v. Wade and they somehow still think that if they shout enough, they'll convince people. And, and that's just not how, how it's going to work. I think they're completely unprepared for the backlash that will happen if the Supreme court does overturn Roe. Um, mm -hmm. They've not done their job persuading people. And, um, uh, 
And, and it, it's, it's a shame. But for those of us who care about the issue, it's a shame that it's been so mishandled and, and really been made, you know, a, a part of the Republican Party. And for the last four years, completely tarnished for being associated with Donald Trump. Um, we should say, for those of you who might be wondering, uh, Archbishop uh, Leonard Blair of the Hartford Archdiocese went right down the line with uh, Archbishop Gomez uh, on this uh, issued a statement saying that uh, those are his thoughts as well. Uh, he said, I invite all of our parishes parishes uh, to include a, a prayer petition like the following uh, in uh, in services at Mass. Uh, and then the, the, the petition was for all government leaders, including those who profess our Catholic faith, that they may uphold a just and moral, moral social order and the dignity and rights of every human being from conception until natural death. Let us pray to the Lord. Um, but he, he certainly uh, is siding with Gomez yeah. on this. So, you know, Michael, in a broader way, um, I don't know, I go back to a, a professor uh, I had in college, Sidney Alstrom, who wrote that, you know, in 1960, effectively, the theocracy of America ended the, this nation, which had been emphatically Protestant, and, you know, at least from the point of view of, of what the government understood to be religion. Uh, right. I mean, we just <laughs> never had a, a president who was anything but a Protestant. Well, now the speaker, of the, uh, well, the president is Catholic. The speaker of the House is Catholic. The Senate majority leader is Jewish. The chief justice uh, of the Supreme Court is Catholic. Catholic. Everybody on the Supreme Court except Gorsuch, who used to be Catholic, but everybody else is either Jewish or Catholic. There's a way in which, you know, Alstrom was kind of a little bit off because we didn't really, after Kennedy, we kind of didn't repeat anything like that for a, a long time. But one gets the sense that we are in a new era. And, and you can sort of pile into that some of the black, um, new, the new black members of Congress who are bringing a very specific black Protestant social gospel into what they do. It just, the old voice, it, it, the old monochromatic voice is just not really there anymore. And there's an awful lot of other stuff going on. Well, in the 1960s, of course, the most prominent uh, ministers in the country would have been William Sloan Coffin, who led, you know, the opposition to the uh, to the Vietnam War. Dr. King, uh, the great civil rights leader, and and think of the other ministers around him, Jesse Jackson, and and such. So, so in the 60s, I think the most prominent voices in the public square, the voices of faith, tended to be uh, more liberal. It's only really with the uh, advent of the the moral majority in 1979 when that was started that you start to see in the 80s that very clearly the the dominant expression of faith in the public square becomes conservative and uh and and i think then in the catholic church it gets exacerbated by the fact that um a lot of liberals started leaving the church and then when you had the clergy sex abuse crisis um people of all ideologies tended to leave the church but liberals disproportionately more than than conservatives and so what you have left, uh, you know, there are undoubtedly there are more conservative Catholics in the pews than there were, say, in Kennedy's day. But I think it will be an interesting, it'll be interesting to see how things like mainstream media get their head around having a, a, a very pronounced liberal Christian voice in the public square when we're so used to simply associating Christianity, at least, with, with a kind of conservative politics. So it'll be very interesting to see how that that plays out. Right. Well, oh, so we'll we'll stop there. To be continued. This is an interesting journey we're on, uh, and Michael Sean Winters will be back with us to talk more about it as the Biden presidency continues. Uh, Michael Sean Winters writes the distinctly Catholic blog for the National Catholic Reporter, the author of two books, including Left at the Altar: How Democrats Lost the Catholics and How the Catholics Can Save the Democrats. Uh, and he has written about the inauguration uh, as well. Thanks for joining us today. 
Take care, Colin. Okay. We'll take a little break here. We'll come back. uh, And I'm just going to talk all by myself uh, about somebody I knew, somebody a lot of people knew, a guy named John McDonough, who left us on January 21st, which was his birthday. Oh, the shepherd is asleep Where the willows weep And the mountains are filled With lost sheep Ring them bells For the blind and the deaf Ring them bells For all who are left Ring them bells For the chosen few Who will judge the many When the game is through Ring them bells All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing about something. No, I'll tell you what I'm laughing about. I mean, I just, you know, when I was talking to Mike, getting ready for the Michael Sean Winters interview, I was thinking about the fact that, yeah, the president's Catholic. The chief justice of the Supreme Court is Catholic. You know, the speaker's Catholic. The, uh, um, the majority leader of the Senate is Jewish. You know, I mean, then we might have to do affirmative action for Protestants. You know, we might have to like, you know, like hire a Protestant. <laughs> that would be new. That'd be different. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, AOC is Catholic. Anyway, um, that's not, I'm not serious about that. Don't send me any emails. Um, so today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, who's the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, and of course, the technical producer is Cat Pastor. She's the person making all this stuff happen the way that it is supposed to happen, instead of the way that it's not supposed to happen, which would be less ideal, I think. So we've got a lot of other shows coming up for you this week, but I can't talk about them just because I'm not supposed to. Uh, and uh, so we're going to move on here. And the way that we're going to move on is uh, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that maybe. You already know, or you, you, I don't know if you go to a lot of concerts or if you go to a lot of spoken word things, or I, I don't know, one way or another, uh, you might have gotten to know a guy named John McDonough. And if you were a kid in the late 90s, you might have met him in this context. Go ahead, Cat. Bunny Rabbit, what are you going to do with these hundreds of carrots? Hmm? Bunny, there's no way that you can eat all these carrots by yourself. Carrots don't last that long, Bunny, even in a refrigerator. I think there's only one thing that you can do, Bunny. You're going to have to share. So that's the voice of a guy named John McDonough, who's actually a relatively difficult person to describe. Uh, He is a person who made his living. First of all, he lived here uh, in Connecticut, uh, lived most of his time not too far from where I'm sitting. Uh, He was very active in the Hartford arts scene in the 70s, 80s, um, when there was sort of a lot of uh, it's hard to explain what it was, but the, the, there was a very impish uh, and transgressive arts scene here. There was a group of artists who called themselves the, the Amelia Earhart Society, a name they took off of a sugar packet uh, at a restaurant called the Marble Pillar, where they all congregated. Uh, and they ran around creating art, but also kind of in a very amusing way, causing trouble. Uh, and John, I think, among them was less of a troublemaker uh, and more uh, of somebody that you brought into a project um, because he was really good at what he did. He was really, really good at using his voice. Uh, he also, I mean, in the spoken word environment, um, he did audiobooks, uh, hundreds of audiobooks. Uh, there's a writer, I think he's of Hungarian origin, Jan Karan, who I think John did essentially all of maybe his books. Um, but there was also a way in which 
in any thriving arts and performing community, you have to have some people around who are really good and who say yes to a lot of stuff. Uh, and so if you, you know, called John up and said, you know, and she said, I need a, we need a narrator for this. We need a narrator for that. We need somebody who can, who can voice this thing. Uh, he, you know, he just said yes a lot, partly because that was his job. That's how he made his money. And I'm sort of describing a little bit of my own life when I say this. I'm like, like the second string, uh, John McDonough. You know, if you can't get him to do Peter and the Wolf, you know, maybe you'll call me next. Um, but so he was just sort of marvelous that way. Uh, he was very famous for these Christmas concerts uh, called Christmas Angelicus. Um, he actually, this role, I believe, has now been taken over by uh, my uh, colleague, former colleague or whatever, John Dankowski, uh, who wrote very eloquently about John McDonough on Facebook this weekend. It's actually how I got the sad news that John had passed. And one of uh, John's specialties uh, with Chorus Angelicus was uh, this poem he would usually do at the end of the concert, uh, bringing members of the choir up to sort of join hands back when you could do that. Uh, and it's, it's called Touch Hands. It's by a person named William Henry Harrison Murray, who's also actually, interestingly, a Connecticut guy. Uh, he eventually became sort of famous for his associations with the Adirondacks, but he was kind of a Connecticut guy uh, at the beginning anyway. And so here's John at St. Patrick's St. Anthony Church uh, doing Touch Hands. Ah, friends, dear friends, as years go by and heads get gray, how fast the guests do go. Touch hands, touch hands with those that stay. Strong hands to weak, old hands to young around the Christmas board touch hands the false forget the foe forgive for every guest will go and every fire burn low and cabin empty stand forget forgive for who may say that Christmas Day will ever come to host or guest again? Touch hands. So, yeah, in the late 90s, uh, the guy who did Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the producing company that did that, they uh, wanted to revive uh, Captain Kangaroo. They picked John. They couldn't have picked a better person. Uh, and John, you know, he was just such a delight to be around uh, that it was, I think, pretty easy for him to convey that delight, even though the series didn't last all that long. I mean, he was he was the right guy to, to try it out with. Uh, in a way, he had this old-fashioned quality to him uh, that made it easy to maybe plug him into an older and more cherished format like Captain Kangaroo. I will quickly say that one of my experiences with John was writing a script in which he played Brahms. Uh, and if you look at a picture of John and then look at a picture of Brahms, say, in his 50s, you can see this was not a big leap. But as we were in, re we were re rehearsing it, we were doing it with a group called Chamber Music Plus. It had a lot of Brahms music in it. We were rehearsing it at the Avery Theater at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And John had this idea. John was a big guy. Um, you know, he was a man of considerable girth. Uh, and he had this idea that somehow or other fit what we were doing, that as he came in for one of his entrances as Brahms, he would do this little pirouette. And he said, I, I think I should do this. I, you know, I think I should do this. Uh, and so he, 
he did, and it was magical. Uh, I mean, it really did kind of fit the moment. Uh, and um, but to see this big guy kind of up on this twinkle-toed pirouette, he he looked actually very graceful on his own terms there. Uh, and it was it's the only thing I remember from that whole production. I don't remember a word I wrote or anything else, but I, I'll never forget this big man kind of shaped like a top doing his little spin. Well, one of the other people who discovered John over the years uh, is was Garrison Keillor, and he used a lot on Prairie Home Companion, and John actually was a pretty good singer. I'd sort of forgotten that part. Uh, And so we're going to close with a performance, a recorded performance that John did uh, in his time working with Prairie Home Companion. But yes, John McDonough has left us. Uh, He died on January 21st, his birthday. Your blessings each day through Blessings while you may, for we are here but little time to stay. All around our hearts, sincere and true, lovely things abound, just waiting for you. Count your blessings while you may. The big or small, whichever comes your way, for then you'll find this world a place of love, if you will count your blessings from above.